You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stowville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Today's show, have you been on the go lately? Would free Wi-Fi bring you back? And speaking of go, how about a fundraising gala to go? But we begin with keeping the economy going. Well, the Ontario government is trying hard to find a balance between protecting Ontarians from COVID-19 and allowing businesses to stay open. This is a big challenge. Joining us now on the feed is Vic Fideli, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. So shutting down parts of the economy by moving the province back into stage two does not appear to be an option right now for your government, Minister Fideli. Well, last week, we were able to put in some amendments to the emergency order where we prohibited the sale of alcohol uh, after 11 p.m., prohibited the consumption of alcohol after 12. We closed the uh, entertainment clubs across the province. Uh, So there was a few different changes made that are all part of the plan just to try to flatten the curve as we enter into our fall preparedness plan. And that preparedness plan was rolled out uh, and there was a price tag attached to it earlier this week. And a lot of it had to do with health issues and health restrictions uh, and concern about the rising numbers. Let's talk about your end of it, the economic recovery and preparedness for the second wave. Well, uh, yes, last week we certainly rolled out uh, several billion dollars worth of preparedness, all really in the health sector. But from our perspective, uh, we continue to look for uh, the issuing of the $30 billion of support uh, that we've had for families and businesses and to ensure those municipalities can respond to the urgent priorities because we want to see people get back to work. So an economic recovery while a second wave is going on, how does that work? We saw... Back in March, I mean, remember that there was no manual, there was no uh, uh, guidelines for this, and we saw uh, a limited shutdown of the economy, but we saw more than 1.1 million uh, people be out of work. We have put back the stages one, two, and three, and so far we've seen almost 700,000 people come back. Uh, Just the way that uh, we had... uh, uh, shut down certain businesses but not others, allowed for a real smooth reopening, a stabilization, got a lot of work to do, but we uh, are on the right track. How important has the work of the Ontario Together Fund been so far, and how much will you rely on it through the second wave? When the Premier said six months ago, never again will Ontario be caught without uh, short of making products ourselves, uh, we put a $50 million Ontario Together fund to help us make personal protective equipment and for companies to retool. And we've seen success after success, company after company pivoting. We now in Ontario make things we never made before or stopped making, ventilators, masks, gowns, face shields, 
sanitizer, sanitized wipes, all now are Ontario made. Will there be enough supply as we go through this second wave? We don't have a manual for the second wave either. We uh, purchased 10,000 ventilators. Linamar stepped up. This is a large wealth-based auto uh, parts manufacturer. They are making the parts. These are rolling off an assembly line at a company called O2 now. Uh, we bought 50 million uh, masks between the federal government and the Ontario government from 3M Canada, who are now building a plant uh, right this moment in Brockville. Well, product will come off the assembly line early in the new year. And the list goes on and on of companies all across Ontario who have stepped up now to make all of these products by the millions. There are companies making a million face masks a week. And we have several of those, a face shield, I should say. Uh, we have several of those found across Ontario. So we are in great uh, shape. And does that include all aspects of personal protective equipment, uh, things like gloves and, and gowns and everything that's needed to protect healthcare workers, but also to protect the public when they are in places where they're at high risk for contracting COVID-19? Now, Anne, you hit one nail on the head. We make virtually every single thing you could need now but gloves. We are working very hard on that. Most of well, all of the rubber basically comes from Malaysia, and that's where the gloves are made. We're looking to make the tapes to ship the raw ingredients here and make the gloves here. That will be a very difficult uh, bridge to cross, but we've got the Ontario spirit behind us. Mm. Can you talk to us about the Ontario Made uh, program? And it's in partnership with the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Association. So how does that work and how does that help to keep everything moving economically in Ontario but also support small businesses? The Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters uh, have a program called Ontario Made and it's to raise awareness and support for all of these world-class goods that are made in Ontario. So when you're walking down an aisle at a store, you should be able to see this Ontario-made branding on things. The Premier has used this example many times. You're in a hardware store, and you're looking for a barbecue. You see the Weber barbecue that's made in Chicago or the Napoleon barbecue that's made in Barrie. All things being equal, Think about picking up the Ontario-made product and help your family, friends, and fellow Ontarians get back to work. So it boils down to source and shop local if you can. Are people getting that message, do you think? We have seen huge uh, uh, take-up on the Ontario-made products, the branding. You can go on supportontariomade.ca, get the newsletter. If you're a manufacturer, sign up. You're going to see more of that roll out in the coming week. It started with heavy industry manufacturers, and now it's getting into the consumer products. I've seen one yogurt uh, package on the shelf that has the Ontario made. You're going to see an awful lot more. There was a huge take-up on that program. 
Are you able to tip your hand a little bit to give us a preview, a sneak peek at what will be rolled out next? Everything we've talked about are programs uh, and initiatives that have been in place for a while. We're now in a second wave, according to the Premier and some health officials. This is a time when we need to see as much support as possible. So what's next from, from you and from your government? We're going to see the Ontario Jobs and Recovery Committee continue to work, continue to bring new measures to support the economy. You're going to continue to hear the federal government make their uh, announcements of pieces that will help the economy. We meet continually with them, and we make sure there are no gaps and no duplications. So we continually speak with our federal counterparts, counterparts, and we talk about what what can be done, and who is best suited to do it. And are you listening to Ontarians as well? We continue to do uh, consultations all across Ontario, uh, nonstop. Uh, almost every day last week, we started about 7.30 in the morning, ended about 7.30 at night with Zoom calls right across Ontario, listening to the various sectors and their needs, what's working, where they need more support, what their challenges are. And quite frankly, we're also doing that worldwide. We had a huge conference earlier in the week with a group from India as we continue to work on Ontario's worldwide trade. On a personal note, and I'm, I often you know, try to keep my thoughts to myself, particularly when I am hosting the feed, but I see many businesses closed for good in the GTA. The corner store windows all papered up with a for lease sign on it. And honestly, Minister Fidelli, it is devastating to see this. It is one of the saddest things that in my lifetime that I've ever seen. Look, this pandemic is unlike anything uh, people of our generation would have ever, ever seen or ever imagined. Uh, there was no playbook on how to handle it. Uh, we saw the numbers uh, flatten, but sadly with the second wave, we've seen these numbers rise. We say to the business community and to families, you know, help has been there for you for six months. Help is still on the way for the next wave. Certainly we put, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, more than three billion dollars in just last week alone on health, on testing, case management, uh, contact tracing uh, into uh, all of our, you know, rapidly identifying these outbreaks. It's all about getting the health side done so that we can continue to help those businesses. Uh, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. Premier Ford is a lifelong entrepreneur. He will say we are both business people long before before ever thinking ourselves as politicians. So we feel for the business community and that's why we're there. We've got their back. We continue to put supports in place to help them. And is that why both the Premier and the Health Minister are reluctant to say, you know, we're going to push Ontario back into stage two? Is it because of the, the challenge that would be faced by everyone who is in business and, and depends on a thriving economy? We're, we're struggling to get back to where we were. Well, the economic health 
of the province is extremely important, but we will always, always put families, the health and well-being of the families, first and foremost, no matter what. And that's why we continue to take our advice from the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Ontario and uh, try to balance that with the needs uh, of all people in Ontario, but we will always put the health and welfare first. And do the health officials and does the Premier and, and does the health minister, do they consult with you? You've got a big portfolio, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. Do they talk to you about the implications of perhaps more restrictions, uh, shutting down parts of the economy, maybe even fully moving back to stage two? The, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, the Minister of Health, uh, there is a command table, a health command table, and they report into uh, our cabinet has been meeting almost on a daily basis. I won't quite say it, it definitively daily, but sometimes twice a day we are meeting. So we take the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health of the command table and we look at all of the ministries, all get to input what the impacts would be of any possible decisions, and then Cabinet makes the ultimate decisions. And we put a lot of different lenses. I, of course, as that minister, put an economic development lens, uh, but it's always balanced. It's got to be the, the absolute health and welfare of every individual has to be at the top of any uh, uh, of any chart. Minister Fideli, if someone in business in Ontario struggling needs help, where can they go for information and for help? If they go onto our website, Ontario.ca, uh, you'll see every area. There will be websites that will show you where to buy Ontario-made PPE. They will show you what other government uh, programs there are. We've got a great program for small businesses called uh, Digital Main Street. It's 57, at the moment, there's $57 million in it that will help companies, uh, small businesses on Main Streets especially, begin to digitize and to be able to sell online. So uh, that's a great new program. There's been a huge take up on that. But all of these programs are, are on, all start at the Ontario.ca and you can navigate through there and basically see all of the supports that are available to our uh, important uh, business community. Vic Fideli, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, thank you for your time on the feed. And Romer, it is always a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Coming up, free Wi-Fi from the get-go. We connect with Transportation Minister Caroline Mulrooney. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Oh, the Ontario government earlier this week announcing that it is providing free Wi-Fi for passengers on all GO buses and 50% of GO trains. Caroline Mulrooney, Provincial Minister of Transportation, joins us on the feed with more. Welcome, Minister Mulrooney. 
Well, thank you very much, Anne. It's great to be with you today. So what prompted this move? Well, Metrolinx is always focused on uh, customer service and looking for ways to improve customer service. And so we have uh, we survey our, our passengers and, uh, and take feedback. And what we heard was that, um, that, that 80% of passengers named Wi-Fi as one of their top three things that they wanted to see Metrolinx roll out. And almost 60% named Wi-Fi as their number one thing that they would like to see. So, uh, so we've been working on, on getting it, uh, making it available, and we were able to announce that this week at beginning on Monday, uh, September 28th, free Wi-Fi uh, is available um, on, um, on, as you said, on the Go Fleet, um, on all trains, all buses, and 50% of trains. So what will passengers actually have access to? So when you, you have... Um, you have access to um, uh, free Wi-Fi. If you have a Presto, if you use your Presto username, you're going to be able to access 50 megabytes. Without, you'll get 10. But you're going to be able to access free Wi-Fi, free entertainment content during your trip, which is unlimited, and it won't be counted against your data cap. So it'll give you the chance, you know, to work on the on the train or the bus and have reliable, high-quality Internet connection uh, so that you can either work or access entertainment. So is this an effort on the government's part and Metrolink's part as well to encourage more people to use public transit? Well, we're always focused on, um, we want to be responsive to our passengers and what they're looking for, and that's what this is. This has been a longstanding request from Metrolink's passengers. Um, but we are certainly in the air in this time of COVID trying to um, make sure that passengers feel safe um, and know that we have taken implemented necessary health and safety measures so that they do feel safe and that when they do choose Go Transit, uh, now they know that they'll be able to access Wi-Fi on trains and buses, and we'll roll it out along all the the entire fleet by uh, the middle of next year. So because of COVID-19, an awful lot of people are working from home and not traveling by public transit and Go in particular, uh, Go trains and buses to get to and from the office. So how do you handle something like that? How do you encourage people, the citizens of Ontario who have access to GO, how do you encourage them to get on the GO? Well, Metrolinx has been a leader um, in in health and safety protocols. We work closely with uh, the, Associate Minister, uh, the Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Yaffe, who uh, provided guidelines, health and safety protocols for transit agencies to implement and Metrolinx was already uh, working on developing those and getting them implemented. So we have rolled out over the last few weeks and months a series of measures which we've introduced online, and the Premier joined me on a GO train so he could see firsthand some of the things that we've done. So if you get on a GO train or a GO bus, you'll see, um, you'll see some changes. You'll see plexiglass barriers in between the seats. Um, in our vehicles, we've removed some of the rows to allow for physical distancing. We've installed hand sanitizer dispensers on buses and on trains and outside. And um, and we've also, at some of the GO stations, I don't know if you've seen this, Anne, but you can actually get your temperature checked. And there's a health kiosk uh, to explain some of the things that we've done. So we've implemented a number of measures that we hope are visible for GO users so that they can see that we are um, we are taking their health and safety seriously.
The premier earlier this week declaring that the second wave has arrived, and that's from his perspective. So how will that impact people's comfort level and confidence when it comes to public transit? Well, our role is to make sure that public transit is safe for people who choose it. There are some people who require public transit, uh, regardless of where we are uh, in, in the first wave or the second wave. Our frontline workers never stopped working, and a number of Ontarians require public transit to get to and from work. And so it's our job to make sure that it's there and that it's safe. Um, you know, I, I, many companies are asking employees to stay home and and people are following those guidelines as well as the guidelines that are issued by by public health. And we're very happy to see that people are respecting the, the protocols and the guidelines that are being issued. But for those who do need to use transit or want to use transit, we want them to know that, uh, that Go Transit is there, um, that we have implemented the necessary health and safety protocols so that they should, they can and should feel safe when they're using a Go Train or a Go Bus. Um, and now, uh, when they do board a go a go vehicle, they'll know that they can access uh, Wi-Fi during their trip, so they can continue to work or take a moment to relax and watch a show or listen to a podcast. Minister Mulroney, as we are now in the seventh month of the pandemic, a lot of people tend to focus on healthcare workers. They tend to focus on schools and children back in school at this point. We are reeling as we see the increase in case numbers here in Ontario. Let's talk about your role as the Minister of Transportation. How important is what you oversee when it comes to the overall picture of COVID-19 in Ontario? Well, as I said, from the beginning, since the beginning of the pandemic in the middle of March, um, we work closely with Metrolinx as well as other transit agencies across the province uh, that never stopped running to make sure that even though ridership had come down significantly because people were being asked to stay home, um, that transit was there and available and safe. Um, within my portfolio, I work with public transit agencies and Metrolinx, as I said, but also um, other sectors like the trucking sector, which was uh, we, we identified as essential right from the beginning. And so uh, we've been working very hard at the Ministry of Transportation to support the trucking industry. That is essential to making sure that our supply chain remains strong. So we can go to the grocery store and and make sure that we can uh, our shelves are full and that we can get uh, we can get food on our tables and medicines that we need that's all due to the truck drivers that never stopped working so that's part of my portfolio and one of the major focuses uh, of our government uh, since the beginning of the pandemic Caroline Mulrooney provincial minister of transportation thank you so much for spending time with us on the feed well thank you very much for inviting me and have a great day And you as well. Thank you. Up next, Jim Lang with the story of a portable COVID-19 testing device with quick results. As the world deals with COVID-19, the rush to find new and quicker and more cutting-edge ways to test people and get results in a faster manner is working at the light warp speed right now. And it's actually really cool. A group of geniuses from the University of Guelph have come up with something really cool called the Hyrus B-Cube, a portable DNA testing laboratory in a box. To talk more about it from the University of Guelph, Dr. Steve Newmaster. Dr. Newmaster, how are you? 
I'm fantastic. How are you this morning? Oh, good, good, good. Um, this is kind of exciting. Health Canada's approved for human testing about the B cube. Just for a layman's term, explain how the B cube works in such a, 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 I guess, rapid manner to help people find out whether or not they are COVID. Sure. Um, so the B cube is actually being in the industry serving food testing to make sure that our food ingredients are safe and they're authentic. Um, the way it works is we sequence the genome of an organism. It could be a virus. It could be a cow. It could be ginkgo that's in a natural health product. And then we do, we look for DNA probes. Um, we look for SNPs, small sections of the DNA that would differentiate any species or strain of a virus from another one. And we develop a test that can be run on a small instrument, which is a polymerase chain reaction or PCR instrument. And all of that can happen in the small box. You, you essentially take my lab and move it down into a box. And that makes an instrument that's available for testing anywhere. Well, not only is it, is it more rapid, but for a lot of people, this is going to be music to the ears, doctor. It's less invasive, which is a, a real sticking point for a lot of people. Yes, that's true. And, and the, big, the big news that came out of Health Canada is this is a point-of-care approved test. This is not a test, that, another test that just shows up in a lab where you're waiting in lines. You're waiting in lines with people who may be sick, so you're going to infect yourself. This is an instrument that could be run in airports where you're waiting to get on a plane so you can get off and travel and do business or perhaps even start thinking about going on holidays. The place of work. And there's, there's so much utility now for point-of-care testing. I know you've had a remarkable 95% plus rate of accuracy in clinical trials. Uh, from the start of actually getting a sample from someone in the cube, how long does it take to you get a result? It takes about three to five minutes to prep a sample. And then you put it into, it goes on a cartridge, you put it into the machine, and it runs in less than 90 minutes. And right now, we're working on protocols to even shorten that time up considerably. And that will be, will go into the queue for approval probably right away as soon as we finish validation on it. So we're making the time shorter. We're making the test even more uh, affordable and uh, available for everybody. Really, we're democratizing molecular biology. We're taking molecular, complicated molecular biology, and we're putting it into the hands of us people to reduce the risk of of COVID spread. Well, and Dr. Newmaster, I mean, I think about my wife, and she has a, a mother in long-term care, and she has to be tested every two weeks. And the other day, she was in line for almost two hours with all these other people, and then she has to wait two days, and you just never know who else in that lineup may have had it while you're waiting for your own results. Yeah, the infrastructure in place to deal with this type of pandemic um, is new for us as a society. We need to build that. And it's not, I hate to say it, it's not going away. As population increases, Disease increases. This is a known fact in biology. We're going to have other pathogens come and infect people and cause problems in society. So we need to have infrastructure put into place, point of care put into place, so that we can, we can deal with the spread, uh, reduce times for testing. As you have pointed out that Health Canada is approved for human testing, uh, once you get to that stage, what is the timeline, doctor, until maybe we might see this in airports or pharmacies or in and around the country? I think in the, in the coming months, so by the end of the year or during, during the fall, really, you're going to see and hear in the news substantial changes. 
and um, we're constantly in meetings right now at public health uh, authorities and provinces figuring out how do we roll this out now. And with Health Canada, federal organizations, you know, airport officials, school officials, working with First Nations, how do we roll this out and what's the priority and how can we get this infrastructure totally into place? You know, one of, one of these great things about the B-Cube is it's, it's hooked into the Internet, either through a cellular network or, or through Wi-Fi. That data gets analyzed in seconds using mathematical algorithms, and we can link all the machines together and look at infection rates everywhere. And we don't have this ability in clinical labs, so it's a game changer not only for speed of testing, point of care, but also how we can gather that data immediately and know how people are getting infected where. Well, and I think, Doctor, it would be a natural marriage of the two with the um, the app they have, the the tracing app. So it just makes it a more effective app, and people really have a sense where these infection areas, the hotspots are in the country. That's right. And, and then for us, and then I'm the same as everybody else, I have concerns. I, have, I worry. I'm stressed. And it helps to reduce stress because now we start to understand where this virus is, where the risks are of infection. And, and that's a really, really good thing for society. Absolutely. Dr. Stephen Newmaster is a University of Guelph genomics professor, uh, probably smarter than most people you know, and there's a real reason why he's behind the high-risk B-Cube, now getting Health Canada approval for human testing, a less invasive and quicker way to be COVID tested. Uh, Dr. Newmaster, uh, thank you so much to you and your team for coming up with this. And uh, uh, anything like this is going to be, like you said, a game changer for all of society in Canada and North America. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for helping us educate everyone. Will do, doctor. Take care. Yeah. We are in the spirit of Thanksgiving and the spirit of giving. How you can help is coming up. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region with Thanksgiving just around the corner. This is the time to give and to give back. Afwa Ba with How You Can Help. We've seen a significant increase in foot traffic at food banks across the country due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so joining me today to talk about the impact that food banks are making across the country, I'm speaking with Marnie Beck-Robinson, volunteer and board member of Richmond Hill Community Food Bank. Marnie, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Happy to talk. Wonderful. Okay, so first off, can you talk to me about the difference um, in a year, basically, pre-pandemic and during pandemic, the foot traffic that you have seen coming into the food bank uh, in this a year span. Well, even before uh, COVID hit um, in January and February, we were still handing out food to about 1,300 people in Richmond Hill and Thornhill. And um, then as soon as COVID hit, I mean, we had to change the way we handed out the food so no longer were we allowing people to come in and sort of choose what cereal or what vegetables. We prepackaged everything and just handed it out the back door to be as safe as we could. So uh, the numbers have stayed the same, if not gone up. Every single day there were new families, people who had never come to our food bank before, and suddenly they needed help desperately. 
what else has sort of been different in terms of the protocol for food banks uh, during the pandemic? We have to choose the groceries for them, which is difficult. And, you know, we basically, everybody gets some pasta and some rice and some vegetables. And then at least um, at the end, at the area where we're handing it out, our, our back door open for one person at a time. And they at least are allowed to choose their meat and their bread and uh, what kind of coffee they want to drink. So they have a few choices that are more personalized. But we're trying to limit the contact between the clients and our volunteers. So we try to serve everybody within two or three minutes. And uh, we insist that, of course, now in any place in New York region, you have to have a mask. They're only inside our building by about a foot or two, but they still are pretty close to our volunteers. So we insist they have a mask. And if they don't have one, we hand one out. And what sort of food products is the bank looking for right now? Well, I'll tell you one thing, some of your listeners may not identify with this, but one thing that is really gratefully received is feminine hygiene and, in general, hygiene supplies like soap, toothpaste, shampoo, um, because, you know, that those things are expensive. And when I offer it to a woman, do you need any of this, you know, sanitary items, you know, her eyes just shine or sometimes they look like they're going to cry because especially a young woman, she has to have diapers for her, her babies maybe, and it's just one more thing she doesn't have to worry about at least this month. So um, we definitely need hygiene supplies of all kinds. You know, men need razors, and, you know, there's, there's lots of things like that that you might not think of for, for a food bank. But, um, and the usual, canned anything that's high-protein like tuna and uh, tomato sauce, uh, peanut butter, those things are always in supply. On our website, richmondhillcommunityfoodbank.ca, we have a list of the most needed items, and it's there every you know, right on the front page for anyone to look at if they are interested in what we need. And we change that up regularly depending on what we need. First off, thank you for letting me and letting the listeners know, you know, most of the time we always think it's uh, food products that the food bank needs. We never really think about hygiene products that could be useful to the community as well. So thank you for that. No problem. Uh, Is the Richmond Hill Community Food Bank uh, doing any sort of Thanksgiving food drive this year, or is it just uh, the general food products that you're looking for? Um, If anyone does bring any food products related to Thanksgiving, would it go out in time? If people come now with, like, cranberry and stuffing, which Mm -hmm. is fine, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to quarantine stuff in our warehouse for seven days, and then it goes on our shelves. So the reality is people who who are bringing in, you know, stuffing, it probably won't be in time for this Thanksgiving, but, hey, it'll be there for Christmas because, I mean, Christmas isn't far behind. But uh, just recently we had a wonderful one, a nine-year-old girl named Jessie, She did a food drive for us, so it's pre-Thanksgiving. It's all going on our shelves right now because she brought it in on Monday morning. So, And that was a nine-year-old girl who emailed our manager about three weeks ago and said, what can I do? I just feel bad for hungry families. And she and her parents um, collected 1,317, if I, I believe I got the number right, items to bring to our food bank. So uh, everyone's doing their best to reach out. Richmond Hill and Thornhill is an incredibly generous community. That is really heartwarming to know and just to hear about how the community is really rallying together to help those in need. Finally, if anyone would like to maybe volunteer or donate, whether it be through monetary funds or maybe through food items, where can they go for more information? 
Well, the easiest way to donate, sometimes people are disappointed we run out of milk. So because, of course, no one can donate milk and eggs and cheese because those are perishable. So we have to go out and buy those. So anybody who donates cash through our website, is that's what we use it for, milk, eggs, cheese, meat. That's an easy contactless way in, in COVID days. You can go to our website, richmondhillcommunityfoodbank.ca, and right at the top you see a red button that says Donate, and that takes you to our page through Canada Helps, and you make your donation online, very safe, and you get your receipt sent to you within days. So that's the easy way to do it. Are there particular days where, you know, residents in the community can drop off food items or is it every day? Every single morning. We're open every morning um, to the clients. It's 9 to 11.30, but there's volunteers there from 8.30 in the morning right up until noon and sometimes 1 o'clock if it's busy. Um, and just come to our back door and knock on the door if it's not open, but it usually is open. And uh, there's a big green bin and it says donations. And you can drop your donations there. All right, perfect. Marnie Beck Robinson, volunteer and board member of the Richmond Hill Community Food Bank. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for also letting us know about how the food bank is also providing to the community uh, during the pandemic. Well, thank you to you and 105.9 audience. We really appreciate being able to spread the word. Now, we've heard about how food banks have been helping people in the community throughout the days of the year. But we also know that there is a great need for food banks during specific holidays. And one of these holidays is actually coming up. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, but many families in York Region may not have any food to put on the table to give thanks for. So joining me today to talk about a Thanksgiving food drive that's happening in the region is CEO from the Food Bank of York Region, Alex Bellotta. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. Well, you're very welcome. Thanksgiving is not that far away, um, and right now there's a Thanksgiving food drive that's going on. So just talk to me a little bit about that, the drive in general. Well, this year, is because of the unprecedented times that we're, we're experiencing, we're not, uh, uh, we're not going to be doing our traditional Thanksgiving food drive. Uh, we've just uh, sent out uh, letters to our, our previous donors uh, indicating, telling them about, our, our, you know, about Thanksgiving and how people are going to need more support during this time and uh, we're hoping that you know they're going to they're going to step up and help us out uh, by going online and donating cash uh, on our website is there any sort of other way that you're sort of changing the Thanksgiving drive this year apart from having online donations come in well people can drop off food at our at our location on Keel Street if they're looking to donate food uh, we are looking for cash donations to purchase turkeys, uh, but other than that, we received a substantial uh, donation from the Walmart Foundation from the Fight Hunger Spark Change event that was spearheaded back in February, uh, and so there, we're going to be purchasing produce for our clients during during the Thanksgiving season. That is awesome news to hear. So already some great news that it's going to be uh, helping out families already. Are you anticipating a change in terms of the turnout that you're going to have to give away in terms of these Thanksgiving dinners as a result of COVID? Um, y- yes, I think that, well, COVID has, has been an extraordinary uh, time for everyone. And there's been uh, an increased need across the region and across Ontario 
So I suspect that during the Thanksgiving season, I'm, I'm pretty sure the numbers, numbers are going to tip, are, are going to increase over previous years. And I know that every year during Thanksgiving, sometimes people like to go to the food drive banks and try to help out in terms of sorting out food. Is that going to be a little bit different this year in terms of the protocol? Well, yes, we are. Like, we do have social distancing here. We are very cognizant of that. We provide masks and gloves for volunteers that do come in. Uh, we, we're finding that, you know, since, since a lot of students have gone back to school, that uh, our volunteer participation has dropped. So we really do need people to come in and, and help us out with food sorting. Okay, perfect. And so then if uh, people would like to volunteer then, how do they get involved? Where do they go for more information? They can sign up on our website, fbyr.ca, and they'll get an, an, a return email indicating that they can go to uh, another website called signup.com, and they can choose from the posted um, uh, dates and times on that website. Okay, and uh, let's say someone's in the grocery store and they want to pick up a couple of uh, food items for the bank. What are some of the items that the bank needs right now? Well, peanut butter, pasta sauce, rice, flour, sugar, baby formula, baby food, milk powder, dryer canned beans, juice boxes, soups, stews, cooking oil, applesauce, jam, gluten-free products, sugar-free products, meal replacement products, canned fish or meat, and hot and cold cereals. Okay, so it's pretty much a, a list of everything that right now is needed at the bank. And um, is there any maybe sort of, if anyone wants to drop off any masks or sanitizers, is that going to be accepted as well? Of course. Also then, have you seen a sort of a, a difference in terms of the scope of people that have been coming to the bank that need help this year? Well, yes. We, we implemented a COVID-19 emergency home delivery program as our response to COVID and what we're delivering to about 100 households per week. And since May, we've fed around 3,500 unique individuals. The numbers show itself that there are a lot of people there that need the help, that need the food, and this is just aside from Thanksgiving. So if we can drop off any type of food items in the next couple of days, we know that will go a long way. But, of course, we know that the first line of defense is the monetary help. So if you could just provide the information as to where residents can go uh, to donate online. Sure. It's uh, www.fbyr.ca slash donate. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Alex Bellotta, CEO of Food Bank of York Region. And residents of York Region, we hope that you heard the call and that you're able to uh, donate. Anything little will really help. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you very much. Charities across the region have had to be innovative when it comes to their fundraising events. Gala to go to benefit Hospice Vaughn is doing just that. Galit Solomon with more. For those who are not familiar, let's begin with the story of Hospice Vaughn. Tell us about it. Well, it's a it's a, a story that many people will be able to connect with. It's about family. It's about community and compassion. The movement of hospice has existed across many generations and it's an international concept of people taking care of people within their community. And it's one that we're so grateful here in Vaughan because over 25 years we have been providing community hospice supports that helps individuals that are living with their declining health issues and their families and their caregivers 
with the generosity of other citizens. It's truly citizenship at its finest. And it's very interesting. Uh, you don't just provide services to those individuals who, um, you know, are, are dealing with end of life. Um, circumstances, but it's also their families that you provide services to. You mentioned it's a, a very holistic approach. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think about my family and your family and what happens when someone's facing a transition. It could be someone's coming into this world and a new baby is coming, as well as people that are dealing with a roller coaster ride of declining health and for those that might be approaching their end of life. The reality is, Delete. Everyone is impacted because we're all people of the heart. Our family members, our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our, it impacts everybody. Mm-hmm. So the holistic approach that Hospice Vaughn offers, as do hospices across the world, is one that embraces both the physical, the spiritual, and the practical needs for both the individual and their family. So uh, it could be your partner, it could be your children, it could be your grandchildren. It's anyone that's impacted by that experience. And we often say you can't have those kind of intimate relationships of feelings with an individual and then not also be affected by that hardship. Mm -hmm. And the loss happens before the death. So that feeling of loss for the person, the feeling of loss for the loved ones around them has to be paid attention to because that also can alleviate people's suffering. And I think the movement within hospice is holistic because it allows space for each person and their loved ones to come together and to ask for what they need, either from a navigation perspective, from a support perspective, and from a system access perspective. And um, it's quite a unique story, and uh, it's one that we, we take a lot of pride in. Our community has been so generous to get involved behind us for the last 25 years. And, of course, none of us have been immune to the impact of COVID. Tell us about how it's impacted your specific community at Hospice Vaughn. I have to tell you, at first when uh, we were getting on the horizon, the impact of COVID and what it might look like, myself and my professional staff team and some of our volunteers, we kind of said, okay, we do sick, we do dying, but we don't do pandemic. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, the phone went crazy, seven days a week, morning, noon, and night. And trust me, I have a cell phone, so those calls were often coming to me and then (laughs) some of my teammates. And people were just frightened. They didn't know what to do, obviously. It was affecting the whole world. But a lot of people's loved ones, if they were at home or they were in different care settings that were either declining or at end of life, either because of their disease their illness, or because of COVID, didn't know where to turn. And a lot of that was impacted by the sense of isolation. You couldn't go into those homes. You couldn't be by the bedside. Mm. You couldn't see them. You were afraid if you saw them, what, what would the risk to them or you be? And all of a sudden, more people were being impacted by death and loss and fear, and they didn't have their natural connections. And it really made people panic and all of a sudden we had to kind of become very nimble and responsive in a way that we've never had to do because a lot of our interaction has been face-to-face with people. And all of a sudden we had to take a pause. We had to ensure everyone's safety on all levels and figure out how could we do this in a different way? How could we work with our health and community and social service partners? And we had 
the schools calling us. We had the school boards calling us. We had mm-hmm. police services. We had mental health organizations because it caused a lot of anxiety and fear mm-hmm. for everyone, especially when they couldn't be with someone who was approaching their end of life. It's been it's been uh, a shaky time for people, and um, now that we're a few months into this, I think people are starting to rethink of what is possible and hopefully building their own personal aspects of resiliency Mm. and as service providers and compassionate volunteers and community partners, we're finding a way to still meet the needs in perhaps a different way Mm. and helping people ease through the transitions because loss doesn't come before the death, I say to people. It happens well before that. Right. And just really making sure that people have that love around them. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of building, uh, provide us with an update on the new building at Rutherford and, and Islington. When will it open? How many rooms are in this facility? Uh, you know, what does the hospice provide to the patients and residents and their families um, once this building opens? We are so proud. We've had a love story of wanting to make sure that compassionate care and a better ending exists for everyone in our community, Vaughn and our neighboring communities and beyond. All of a sudden, we have this innovation. We have a community hospice hub. We have a building, which will be the Mario and Nick Cordellucci Hospice Palliative Care Center of Excellence, that is going to have 10 residential hospice suites, which will be beautiful. The building will become a cornerstone for people to gain access and information, to access community programs and supports. Our volunteers are cornerstone uh, to making that possible. And then we're going to have a beautiful, tranquil, lovely spot where people can come for their final rest if they cannot manage at home or to keep them out of hospital. And those private rooms will allow families to shift their caregiving role to a very supportive one to be with their loved ones and our healthcare staff, 24-7 healthcare team, will be providing essential hospice care supports for those at end of life that will open later this year. The community programs will uh, will move into the building later this year and then the residential expansion for the 24-7 healthcare component will open sometime early in 2021. We're almost there, folks. I know I get calls Mm. all the time, day and night, asking when the beds will be opened. They are coming, and they're coming soon. I was just there earlier today. The team, the construction workers, um, the volunteers, um, all of the partners are working tirelessly to get this project done to the to the great capacity. It's, it's going to be something that isn't about a building, but, but about a spirit of kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. And we're so proud that Vaughn is going to finally have these much-needed residential hospice beds. And, of course, projects like this require funds. You are a not-for-profit organization, and galas are one way that those funds are raised. Some organizations have had to, you know, sadly scrap these these galas. But you have something coming up, the Gala to Go on October 16th. Tell us about it. We sure do. It's really important that the listeners know that we only receive currently 15, less than 15% of our funding uh, mm-hmm. through government sources. The rest of the funding comes from private donations and events that help to mobilize our services. Our services are offered at no charge. So our commitment to increasing our service demand is, is so much more magnified during COVID, as is every other person's personal story and, and business story and, and charity story. Our gala 
has typically grown from a few hundred people to over a thousand people every year. It's a beautiful gala that's led by community ambassadors and gala co-chair volunteers with one staff person who helps to put together this phenomenal event as well as other uh, events like our Hike for Hospice and third-party events that others in the community have to support our charity. This year with COVID, there is no way. We made this decision very early on um, back in March, April, that we would not put ourselves or anyone that come to us at risk. It's our commitment across the board. Our gala had to be tweaked. Our gala co-chairs, Louis Chiano and Esther Paris Morrow uh, for 2020, said, okay, we have to re-envision. Let's create something different. A lot of virtual pieces, but we just didn't want to have a virtual gala. We wanted something that people could feel proud of, that would feel like we're going to do this in a safe way. So this year's theme is called Life is a Beautiful Ride. Even though there's twists and turns on the road, we're going to have a takeaway gala in a box, which includes a gourmet meal, a three-course meal, which is uh, friendly for uh, uh, vegetarians and pescatarians and uh, traditional eaters, so to speak. And you pick up a beautiful gourmet meal. It could be for two or ten or any combination. You pick it up. You take it home. You bring your bubble close to home. You dress up or you stay in your pajamas. doesn't really matter. You'll have sparkling water or wine option. You'll have some flowers to make your table beautiful. You'll serve your meal safely within your family or within your close uh, network. And people will continue to still find a way to raise funds for the services and programs that we offer. And then in addition to that, for those that might not be in a position to participate in that way, or in addition to uh, taking a gala to go box home, we are going to have our very first virtual 50-50 uh, draw, and we are raffling off a Vespa that was donated to us mm-hmm. with much kindness. And people can get involved by buying tickets online, uh, hospicefond.com. They can uh, figure out what it might look like, and they can just feel that they're part of ensuring that hospice, compassion, and care in Vaughan and beyond will happen through their support to Hospice Vaughan. I, I really don't even know what to say. It's it's quite an ingenious model that mm-hmm. our, our volunteer leaders have come up with and our Gallo co-chairs. Absolutely, and congratulations to them for sure at a time like this especially. For right? sure, for um, sure. How can our listeners learn more, donate, or, and, or participate? Yeah, if that is so important to us. First of all, we want people to be aware of hospice services because if you haven't dealt with it yet, at some point you're going to have someone in your in your neighborhood or in your home or in your family or network that needs hospice care. Uh, we really rely on volunteers, and our donors are so key uh, to ensuring that our services are able to be offered at no charge to our community. Hospicebond.com has a lot of wonderful information. Reach out to us by phone if that works better for you at 905 905- Eight five zero six two six six. Ask for me, Belinda, or Diane, who runs our events. Uh, we're here. Uh, our service team is available, and uh, we just really want to thank uh, the Region One Hundred Five Nine and your incredible team for being our supporters for so many years and for helping us to get our message out. And people will often say, "If I only knew." So I hope one more listener knows, and I hope people consider getting involved in the the Life is a Beautiful Ride, the Gala to Go for 2020. We really need your support, and uh, we're very grateful for all of those people that are championing for us in every small and big way. 
Belinda Marchese, Executive Director of Hospice Vaughn. Thank you so much for your time today. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.